they, well, they don't show pain at all because they, they don't feel pain. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hi, hello, how are you? Welcome back to the podcast that is about all kinds of animals, even ones that you might not know are animals. The Rossafari Podcast. Now, John, you may be thinking to yourself, what an enigmatic way to start the podcast. Well, you're not wrong. Today, we are going to be doing a deep dive on an incredibly important incredibly endangered animal, species, group of species, family, group of families, uh, there's a lot of them, that is known as coral. That's right, y'all. Coral are animals. You're going to hear it again in the interview. I'm sure a lot of you know it, but I'm also sure that some of you that are listening don't actually know that, and that's okay. So uh, you're going to by the end of this episode, though I can tell you that much. Well, actually, I guess you know it now because I just said it. Anyway, this is a really unique and really different episode of the Raw Safari podcast. We are talking to Nick McMahon, who is a coral biologist at the Moat Marine Lab Aquaculture Research Park. Now, you've heard me talk about Moat before, not only in the Zoo News episodes where I cover the amazing research that they're doing, but also in that incredible episode about sea turtles that came to you from the beach as we were looking for and finding sea turtle nests, and also from the incredible manatee episode. Moat just has it all. And um, I got to tell you, though, when I say they have it all, I mean they have it all. In fact, they have multiple campuses, and uh, the Moat Aquaculture Research Park is different from the main Moat Lab and Aquarium that we've talked about so far. It's in a different part of Sarasota, and um, it's, it's just so cool. This is one of those facilities that isn't really open to the public, so there's not big signage and super cool buildings everywhere trying to impress Joe Q public and the donors. Instead, it's just a bunch of amazing buildings that you turn down a dirt road, drive past a farm, hope you're going to the right place. I was. And uh, end up getting to a bunch of really amazing, really specific buildings. And the building that we are going to be going to today is known as the Coral Gene Bank. That's right, y'all. This is a place where Moat Marine Lab is actively working to save the genetic diversity of coral species and prevent them from going extinct in the wild. Sound a little familiar? Like a lot of the other conservation work and SSP work that is done in different facilities? Yep, but uh, it's got its own flavor to it because we're talking about corals, which are a very different animal than anything we normally talk about on the podcast. As I'm sure you can tell, I'm excited about this episode, and I'm really excited to share it with all of you. 
But before we get to that, let's talk about a couple of things here. Make sure that you are subscribed, and it really helps if you can give a five-star rating. Heck, if you can take 30 seconds and write a quick review, it helps even more. And when I say it helps, I don't just mean that it strokes my ego. By the way, it totally strokes my ego. But I mean that it actually helps people find Safari when they're searching for things like zoos or animals in the podcast app. Also, make sure that you are following along on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Safari and on TikTok at Pod. And uh, yeah, I just, I appreciate all of you being part of this community. It's, it's really cool. Um, not to break away from the coral topic too much, but as I am recording this, it is Saturday, September 18th, which uh, was International Red Panda Day. And I got to meet a lot of people today when I was visiting the Columbus Zoo who are fans of the podcast. First of all, for those of you that are hearing this, it was so cool to meet so many of you and the stories you shared and the stuff that you told me. Wow, it really meant a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you so much, all of you. And just for everyone listening, I just want you to know that I appreciate that you're a part of this community because it really is a community. And I really saw that in a very amazing and, and tactile way today. And uh, it, it means the world to me. It really does. So thank you all for being a part of this community. All right, enough being all emotional and stuff. Here's an ad. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamer Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com slash studios. All right, y'all. So let me introduce you now to Nick McMahon, the coral biologist who I'm going to be talking to for the next 50 or so minutes of your life. Nick is just a cool dude. He just, he gets it. He's one of those people that um, you can just tell would be like a fun hang, but is also really brilliant and just really, really secure in, in who he is and what he does. The coral are in good hands, and I'm, I'm really excited to share him with you. So, without further ado, here is my interview with Nick McMahon, coral biologist at Moat Marine Labs Moat Aquaculture Research Park. All right, so um, why don't you tell me who you are, where we are, and what you do here? My name is Nick McMahon. We're at Moats International Coral Gene Bank, and I'm one of the coral biologists here. So I actually was here uh, at, at the beginning before there were any there's before there was any water in the tanks. <laughs> so uh, I was in here in the dark, no AC, just uh, making sure all everything was plugged in and ready to go when we did start to have water, and and uh, we didn't get corals until 
January. But um, oh wow, this, so this is really new. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I did not know that. Yeah. I am. I am ridiculously excited about all of this. It's very cool. It's a very cool facility. Uh, Nick gave me a tour before we started, and it's really neat here. Uh, but we're gonna we're gonna start off um, with some basics about you, and then we'll get to some coral basics because y'all, if you don't know this. Coral are animals, and I feel like already some of you just had your minds blown. So uh, sit back, relax, and, and let's learn about this incredible animal species. Um, but first, we'll talk about you. So how did you get into coral? That's a, a kind of t- a tough question, I guess. I, I mean, I've always been into marine biology. I think everybody has a level of interest in the ocean, and um, some more than others, but um, I guess it started when I was a kid. My dad would always go scuba diving and talk about the things that he saw and that got me interested to start. I studied marine biology in college. Uh, I had a girlfriend actually buy me a fish tank when I was in college and that I would say was probably the beginning. I got into keeping fish, which got me into keeping corals and that evolved into me going to graduate school and taking care of corals there, working at an, a nonprofit that's in West Palm beach. And, uh, we, kept corals and aquacultured corals for retail. I learned a lot about corals there. I learned more in grad school. Uh, graduate school was crazy for me. I actually had, I mean, it, I took care of other people's tanks and the work tanks at the nonprofit. I had a tank specifically for my project at school, and then I had a 30-gallon tank at home. <laughs> so it was, uh, it, I was just completely immersed in it and became just completely obsessed with corals at that point. That's really amazing. So for, for, I'm curious, okay, so you have a fish tank. Everybody at some point gets a fish tank Mm -hmm. and somehow yours turned into a coral keeping tank. What was the process there? How did you decide that corals were something that you wanted in this random gift fish tank? I think if anybody's, anybody's seen a coral tank before you want one, it's just a matter of accepting the challenge and, uh, or not, and and just continuing to read and get more and more interested. It's it's, it's one of those hobbies, you know. It just sucks you in, and um, it took me through. I mean, up until now, I still have corals. I really only have I have one clownfish, and <laughs> the, everything else is corals. That's but um, but yeah, I, it, it got me into my academics as well, and then here eventually. So I, I just like I said, there's if you see one coral tank. Like, I want that at my house. It's just so relaxing. It's better, I think, than TV. I'd rather sit in front of my tank with a glass of whiskey and just stare at it for, you know, I don't know. It's just better than better than TV to me. I mean, that may be the whiskey talking, but no, I totally get it. I do. It helps. <laughs> um, okay, so let's do Coral 101. Okay. okay. Um, like I said, you know, People are tuning in for a whole lot of red pandas and and maybe some sea turtles and stuff like that. Um, and so talk to me about coral. What are coral? And tell me a little bit about their lives, all that, all that good stuff. Corals are these seemingly very basic animals. They produce a calcium carbonate skeleton. And people think they're just living rocks. Um, but they're actually animals, as you said. They're related to jellyfish. Um, so imagine uh, if you put a jellyfish on the seafloor uh, with its tentacles facing upwards, and then you suddenly had thousands of them connected together, so their stomachs basically are connected. Uh, so they all share food and what they acquire from the environment as far as they can 
their tentacles are out into the water. They can sting things and bring that into their mouths. That food is essentially shared throughout the colony um, because one coral is called a colony. So if you have one rock of coral, that's the coral colony. Um, Obviously, there's different sizes and shapes, but they're all considered a colony. And uh, so they get their food that way, but they also get their food, um, something that a lot of people probably also don't know, uh, is they have a symbiotic relationship what's considered a mutual symbiotic relationship with algae that live inside their their tissues. And this algae actually produces food for them. Most of their food comes from this algae. It's called zooxanthellae. And uh, so that's why the corals need sunlight. It's not because they're a plant or whatever. It's because they have plants inside of them. And uh, that produces sugar for them. And the actually, so the coral then eats that and uh, it gives them a place to to live that's safe from you know predators and so it's a mutual relationship that is just beyond fascinating Mm -hmm. how old are coral as far as evolutionarily or i i don't know actually that's that's a good question i know i mean it's hard to date corals um because they're their skeletons break down over time and form the sediments on the beach and the sediments throughout the world. Um, But as far as um, I know, there's certain living specimens in the Pacific that have been dated to 800 years. Okay. Like living ones. Um, So, but there's, there's also the consideration that certain anemones are basically immortal because they can, they can split. And they're, that's the same, they're cloning themselves. Right. So if you consider that one anemone could just split itself into eternity and that doesn't have a skeleton, so we can't date it. So it's hard to, it's hard to say. So it's, yeah, it's an interesting concept. It really is. This is, this is so, you know, I guess it makes it easy to understand why people don't think of them as animals a lot of the time for many reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is all just so fascinating to me. Like I said, I know none of this. Um, and so, okay, so they are animals. They have a shared stomach. Um, they have algae that live in them in a symbiotic relationship. But you said they also have tentacles and can reach out and sting food. Are we talking like literal like jellyfish-style tentacles? And how, how big are they? I mean, is this something where if you're barefoot in a coral reef, you can get stung? Certain corals have the ability to sting people, but most wow. of the time – uh, that's not the case. Um, uh, there's fire coral in the Caribbean where if you if you touch it, I mean, their tentacles are only maybe half a centimeter at most, um, so a quarter of an inch. But that it hurts. Um, but as far as other corals, some of them have very small polyps and aren't able to really capture a lot of food. Other ones have extremely long tentacles um, and can capture prey swimming through the water, especially at night, they all open up at night to, to catch, uh, phytoplankton and zooplankton. So things drifting through the water. Right. Right. And we're talking in general, we're talking on a very small scale though, right? They're not grabbing fish out of the water that go screaming into their mouths, right? <laughs> no, not, <laughs> not, not, not really. Usually. I mean, if that's the case, then it's a, it's a small fish and it's a coral with like a big, you know, big polyps. Right. Right. 
Okay. Very, very interesting. Um, and then, uh, so when we think about coral, the word that we usually hear is coral reef um, in, in the vernacular. So what is a, what is a coral reef? So coral animals, uh, as I said, they, they produce a calcium carbonate skeleton. So they're able to use the products of photosynthesis and they're actually able to regulate their internal pH in order to produce calcium carbonate as their skeleton. And then they can grow based on that. And as they, as they grow larger and larger, uh, that's what produces the reef. So there's different species that can calcify at different rates. There's certain species that can grow larger than others. Um, some can be as the size of, a, you know, a Volkswagen. Some can be the size of a small hot air balloon. Um, and others may be only the size of a volleyball. So, but those all kind of cement and grow what we call a coral reef. Okay. And then the, the famous one of those is obviously the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, but it turns out that they are actually all over the world. There are coral reefs right here in Florida, correct? I actually spoke to someone the other day and um, you talk about blowing people's minds. It, I think I blew his mind and it blew my mind reciprocally, reciprocally that he didn't know this, uh, that actually Florida's um, coral reef is the third largest barrier reef in the world. I also did not know that. Wow, yeah. that's really amazing. So the obvious one is the Great Barrier Reef, mm -hmm. and the second largest is in Belize, and the third is right here in Florida. Oh, wow. Where at? Right off the East Coast. I mean, yeah. all along the East Coast, actually, some of it goes up into, extends into southern Georgia. Oh, wow. And then it goes all the way down past Key West. <laughs> that's absolutely fascinating. Very cool. Um, so... Uh, are there any other kind of facts that you want to throw out there about coral in general? Like just basic stuff that I'm not informed enough to know to ask? I think a lot of people don't understand what reefs are, why reefs are important. Uh, they, I mean, they, they basically create a buffer against uh, wave action and, uh, and storms. So a lot of these hurricanes that are hitting, the, you know, say even the east coast of Florida, we have this barrier reef that I, that I was just talking about. Uh, with these corals dying and the reef falling apart, we're now losing that protection from hurricanes and wave action. Um, so storm surge and things like that. And that's obviously a major concern for a state that we're talking about might be underwater in the next half a century. Right, right. So uh, it, the, the more we're losing that battle and these storms are also battering our coasts, um, it, it's a cause for major concern. Makes sense. Uh, so I know that there are major problems with the, the coral reefs in Florida right now or the coral reef in Florida. And I know that the great barrier reef is there's talk that so much of it is dead and is, um, bleached and everything that it's no longer, I was just reading that it's, it's getting downgraded in, in some regard. I don't, I, I honestly don't remember exactly what the article said, but, um, lots of bad things are happening with coral and these reefs right now you yeah. alluded to uh, what's what's going on what's causing all of this in certain places it's different than others um overall the the biggest concern for corals is sea temperature rise overall so sea surface temperatures and that creates health issues for corals it basically compromises their immune their quote unquote immune system um it makes it tough for them to handle things that they would normally be able to handle without the stress of high temperature. Um, so that's the, that's the biggest one. But like I said, that opens the door for other problems. So if 
you're dealing with that one stress that's prolonged over time, it's going to make it harder for you to deal with disease um, or acidification or pollution, anything else, any other stressor that could compound that first one. So if you're already like, I mean, imagine anything. If you've got one thing that's stressing you out, putting something else on top of it is going to make it so much worse. So, yeah, of course. Yeah. Makes so, sense. So the biggest one for Florida would actually be currently, besides the temperature anomaly, um, which isn't really an anomaly, it's, you know, it's climate change. Right. But we are dealing with something called stony coral tissue loss disease. And we've had a couple diseases in the Caribbean uh, throughout time, but uh, the one now... Uh, we don't know what the pathogen that causes it is. We don't. We can't isolate it. There's uh, not been someone who can grow it in a culture yet, um, which makes it impossible to identify. So we don't know if it's viral, bacterial, fungal, oh, wow, or anything else. Um, so uh, that's something that we're actually working on here at Moat in the Coral Health and Disease Lab uh, okay. is trying to pin down what that might be. That's the biggest concern for actually caribbean wide but it's it's been centralized uh and focused here in florida for the last six seven years first found it in 2014 so yeah so okay hypothetically let's say that you y'all figure out what is causing this and you know it's it's let's say it's a virus why not so um can you then come up like just like a vet would do with an antiviral and can you give drugs to a reef? Like, how does, how does that work? What would you do if we knew the answer to what was causing it? That's a good question. It's, it's something that we've been just trying, uh, that scientists have been trying and reef managers over the last couple of years is applying antibiotics, applying antifungals, uh, all kinds of things in, in the forms of pace, in the form of just kind of blasting the corals with these, with these um, medications. Uh, we've also removed uh, the state of Florida has actually removed. I don't know. Maybe a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of people don't know this, but there's probably been a few, a few zoos that you've and aquariums that you visited over the last couple months and maybe not, but the FWC, Florida's fish and wildlife commission has actually removed corals from the reef in order to save them from this disease. Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, that's, yeah, it's been a major project and there's actually corals at the moat aquarium. They're called rescue corals. And, uh, yeah, quite, you know, apropos, but so that's one thing that we've, I think the state just decided enough was enough. We need to save as many different genetics as we can before this disease hits them and they've spread them throughout the country. So there's some at the Columbus zoo, there's some on the West coast. Um, I don't know about Philadelphia actually, but, um, there's a couple here in Florida. Uh, but as far as the reef, it, that's kind of a, as you know, as you can imagine, that's a tough situation um, as far as application for for different medications and things like that. Yeah, I would imagine so. I can't just injection train a coral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, and so I assume that 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 not just that disease, but things like that in general, are why we are sitting here today at a coral gene bank, which is the coolest name. <laughs> um, I, I just, I, I think this is fascinating. So this is a new, new facility. You got your coral in January. Um, why, why, why are we here? Why is this a thing? Because of, like you just said, we have things out there that we can't protect the coral from. And even if we know what it is, it's 
very difficult to manage those things. So the goals of the the Coral Gene Bank are basically to provide a safe haven for corals that are on the brink of local and regional extinction. We also want to maintain a genetically diverse broodstock um, for future generations of corals. Um, That way we can ensure genetic diversity amongst the restoration populations. And we also want to try to create um, new corals through assisted sexual reproduction, which is the spawning system that I was telling you about, uh, which we can talk about. Oh yeah. We're, we're going to talk about that. That <laughs> for was sure. so cool. Yeah. Super exciting. Um, uh, we also want to eliminate the need for harvesting corals in the wild for research based purposes. Um, but also encourage the study and preservation of corals, uh, for biomarker development, uh, for resilient reef restoration activities. Um, so basically we can identify, that helps us to identify, you know, like individual genetics from others. So basically what we're talking about here, and, and I don't know why this blows my mind because I understand logically that coral is an animal, but we're talking about an SSP in a way. We're talking about genetic diversity and ensuring that we, we mate and we, we preserve the different genetics um, in part to make sure we have them here and we, we, we can continue to, to grow them and in part to re-release them into the wild. This is no different, uh, except for in how you do it, than you know, reintroduction populations of, of native wildlife. We hear about, you know, oh, this zoo released a local salamander that they, you know, and it's that kind of idea along with like what we do with the SSP and the AZA um, at zoos and stuff saying, you know, okay, we have these red pandas and we need to genetically track everything so that we mate well, yep. so that we ensure gen- it's the same idea because again, coral are animals and yep. it's so obvious that you would treat them that way as they are animals, but it's also so mind blowing because they're coral and it's just weird to think about because never it. nobody's ever heard of it before. Yeah, no, this is this is so totally different. Um, it's it is a new concept, but there are a couple facilities around the around the world that are starting to do exactly this. Um, I wouldn't say, I don't think we can say we're the first in the world, uh, but we are probably among the top five. Uh, the first five. And definitely the best. You can't say that, but I can. Okay. I'm heavily biased, but I'm going to say it anyway. I would like to say that. <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> so um, how many species of coral are out there, roughly? In the Caribbean, there's, I think, 20, 20-something reef-building species. That's okay. not counting the sea fans and the different types of anemones and things that, well, there's, yeah. There's a lot of different types, but in the in the Pacific, there's hundreds, hundreds of different species, hundreds of different um, genuses, uh, you know, tens of of families. Uh, it's there's there's a lot of coral. Wow, that's that's really interesting. How many species are y'all able to get in here at any one time? Because I know it's always kind of shifting and everything. But. Well, our first goal is to have every major species from the Caribbean. And then eventually we'd like to have worldwide species from, you know, from the Pacific, from American territories in the Pacific Ocean and, you know, eventually from the Red Sea everywhere else so that we can keep those genetics. The idea is to keep them in triplicate. So we have not just one copy. We have three copies of everything in case for whatever reason, one of our systems decides to, you know, go kaput. We have two other copies and then from there we can uh, we can actually replicate them. Uh, something else people probably don't know is that you can you can actually cut corals 
into different pieces and they reproduce sexually by fragmentation. Uh, certain plants do that. Um, but, um, you can literally put it through a bandsaw, cut it in half, and now you've got two copies of of that coral. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. Okay, that's... so that's that's the idea, and that's the that's what we hope to do here. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, we don't do that with uh, with most animal species. Not really. No. 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 <laughs> yeah, that'd be scary. <laughs> um. And a mess. Yeah, very, very messy. Yeah, that would not that would not go over well. I'm sad thinking about it, but so anyway. Um, okay, so that is a really cool goal, and that is a really neat way to you know preserve things. But uh, let's be clear: when we've talked about other genetic banking in on this podcast, we've talked about things like how the St. Louis Zoo and the San Diego Zoo have gene banks where they have frozen genetics of a species that they can use for things. And sometimes we hear about like artificial insemination because we have frozen sperm and frozen eggs and all that good kind of stuff. That's not what we're talking about here, though. There isn't some little tray of slides. There is a room not yet. with coral. Okay. All right. Right. Fair, but fair. yes, you're right. But yeah, yeah, so that's talk, not what we're doing about here. what we've got here right now. Right now we have just living species. So uh, living specimens and living genetics. And that's the idea is to keep them alive as long as possible. Uh, we can grow them, like I said, grow them and then frag them down just to keep the even the smallest. We don't want to keep the smallest amount of tissue. We'd like them to grow. Um, but at some point we, we grow and we cut them down to a smaller size. That way we can hold more different types of genetics, a diverse, um, you know, variety of, of genetics here, uh, for all of the purposes that I named earlier. So uh, we want to just maintain small pieces of the coral really. Right. Right. And, uh, so how do you go about doing that? We collect from our, um, we have a restoration branch, a lab down in the, in Summerland Key, mile marker twenty five in the Keys. It's on the on the ocean side. If you're ever driving down that way, and they do all of our restoration work, so they'll collect certain genetics for uh, research that we're doing, maybe up here in Sarasota, or even projects that they do down there. But they also outplant, so they're constantly they constantly are pulling corals off of our like field nurseries and bringing them back in and they have to this point they've kind of been responsible for giving me the genetics that they want to uh, replicate and have here for safekeeping Uh, as of last week we're going to start communication with them to let them know which ones we want next so that we can have copies of those very cool. And why don't you describe to the listeners what this room behind us looks like and, and how this works? It's uh, it's so basically it's a it's a warehouse. It used to be an old freezer. This was a sturgeon processing building. Nice. So that yeah, the building next door. I don't know if you saw it in your walk over here. Used to be the sturgeon farm. So they would make caviar and and uh, use the fish for for it was aquacultured sturgeon, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. They'd bring it over to this building and they would process it here. This has been retrofitted now. Um, so it's basically a big warehouse. We've got four systems. Um, each system has four raceways and then a common sump. So five tanks all together, but four of them hold coral. And each one of those tanks has the ability to control the lighting 
individually, as well as the flow pattern individually. And, and then as the water is flowing in, it then flows, it overflows into a, a pipe and then out to the sump, which is where we have all of the filtration to make sure that the, we're removing nutrients that goes into the tank from us feeding the corals, um, as well as supplementing the water with things that the corals need, like extra calcium, extra carbonate for building their skeleton, calcium carbonate, as well as strontium, magnesium, other trace minerals that they need to do that. Yeah. So we have four systems like that. Yeah, they're really cool looking, by the way. It's just, it's <laughs> just rows of, of little coral tanks that you can look down into. Yeah, yeah very cool. Yeah, they're really awesome. Um, and yeah, we can control the depth of the water. We can control, like I said, the flow pattern. So everything is very, we can basically do whatever we want with it. Right. And that helps find the exact conditions for each of the, the coral uh, that you're trying to preserve, right? Which makes, yeah, which makes it easy to, to hold different corals from different areas because right, right. corals all have different needs. There's certain corals that live at the top of the reef that need a lot of flow, a lot of light. And then there's other corals that live a little deeper that need a little bit less light or a different spectrum and a little bit less flow. And they, so we can, we can tailor uh, each raceway to to different corals or even have different areas within a raceway for different corals. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. And I noticed that along with the coral in those tanks, there are snails galore. So talk <laughs> to me about the role that the snails are playing here. We have, we use a lot of, in aquaculture, we lose a, use a lot of inverts. Um, so actually ideally I'd have a few more inverts like, um, sea urchins and stuff okay. in there, sea cucumbers. Um, but we, snails are, cheap and they're awesome at their job they clean up the algae they clean up any food that may not have been eaten by uh, the corals themselves and uh, I think like I showed you there's there's a tank over there that where the, they literally cleaned t like to bare bottom and they're so uh, they do a great job yeah they absolutely do and it's so cool to see how that all ties in together just like it does like you know out in the water. That's the idea, right? Yeah. Is to recreate, like use these systems and try to recreate as much of a natural environment as possible. We actually use algae in the, in the sump that I was, actually, I don't think I showed you that, but uh, there's a light over the sump and we grow algae on purpose to remove nutrients because this, this algae is actually very easy to manage. You just, it grows like, um, like steel wool okay, and you can rip it in half, throw that half away. And then as it grows, it's soaking up a ton of nutrients and you can just keep doing that over and over. And that way you have less algae growing in the tanks. <laughs> That's really cool. So. And I assume that when we're talking about cutting coral with a saw and ripping algae in half and stuff, you know, since we are telling everyone, hey, these are animals, <laughs> we were joking about it before, but we're not doing anything inhumane here, right? Like these are things that they are used to and they're not feeling pain and there aren't algae screaming when you're you're cutting them with the saw, right? <laughs> I just, I know I have people that are listening <laughs> right now that are like, what the hell are they talking yeah. about? So this is all very kosher and very acceptable and we're not hitting pain issues or anything. We're not slamming right? corals on the floor and <laughs> laughing at it. No, it's, it's, uh, they, they get put into, um, medicated dips after we cut them. Uh, we let them sit there for a little while and we based them off because some of that, the, their skeleton kind of turns into dust and that can settle on the corals. And we we're continually basing them that off of the corals. Um, so we give them vitamin baths afterwards and, uh, and then we put them back in the tank and we watch them closely. But fragmentation, like I said earlier, is a, is a natural process from storm uh, surge and waves and everything. It breaks branches off of corals 
and it's a way for them to asexually reproduce. So it's it's natural. Okay. Yeah, I, I know. I just wanted to. I, I I know what what comments I'll get if I don't make sure that that's in there. So. <laughs> I can I can understand. Um, okay, so let's talk about the last tank that we visited with the the baby corals and what that kind of what is it like like as a baby coral? What do they look like? How do they become what we see when we think of coral? Uh, just talk me through that process. So corals are interesting because they um, they have different modes of reproduction. They have multiple modes of asexual reproduction, um, but they also have between and even within species sometimes different modes of sexual reproduction. Um, there are certain corals that are uh, brooders and um, they will actually internally fertilize and release what we call fer- fully competent larvae. So uh, they're basically a coral baby that's ready to go and can um, go right into its next life stage almost immediately. Wow. There are other corals that are gonochoric, which means they have different speed, they have different sexes. Um, so different colonies, one colony could be a male, one could be a female. And so obviously the male releases sperm into the water column, the female releases eggs, and those float to the surface and will fertilize there. Actually, pretty amazing when you think about it, because trying to trying to make those two connections mid water column would be would be difficult. Right, yeah. So once they're at the surface it's uh it's a little bit easier, but then there's also corals that are hermaphroditic. They are both sexes and they release sperm and eggs. And those sperm and egg bundles float to the surface and then have a time release mechanism so that as the sperm floats away from the egg they're not self-fertilizing. There's all kinds of things that go into this. It's a uh, it's a, it's a huge topic. It's really amazing. And it only happens for some, most species it only happens once every year. Oh, wow. Which is incredible. So after that fertilization takes place, um, and you have a, a larvae, we call coral larvae planula. They look like a little, little jelly bean and they're ciliated, which they have those little hairs. Um, and they move through the water column. They can control where they go. They follow certain settlement cues to the substrate. So what that means is there's certain things that they know are advantageous to basically set up shop. Um, so they follow these chemical cues down to rock um, or, you know, the reef. They actually, there's a study that shows that corals follow the sounds of coral reefs. So the snapping of pistol shrimp and um, all kinds of things. And without that, it's a little bit more difficult for them oh, to find wow. a place to settle. That's really cool though. So these plan, you'll follow, follow these sound cues and these settlement chemical cues and they find a place and sometimes they'll, they'll pick a spot and they might try to settle and attach and maybe they don't like it for one reason or another and they detach and, and find it, try to find another spot. Um, once they find a suitable spot, they'll, they'll attach and then they will, basically turn into an upside down jellyfish, um, which is what we call a polyp. And from, from that planula stage, they develop uh, a mouth and tentacles. And that is when we consider them a recruit or a juvenile coral. Very so cool. That's what we have in that tank that I was showing you. Right. And they're super small, like super tiny. And they were smaller. I mean, you can imagine... Two months ago, they were smaller than they are now, and they weren't even hardly visible. 
Um, and now they're super visible, which is really exciting. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. I wish I wish you could have seen them before. Maybe we'll, I'll even show you in the scope afterwards. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, I did, I did not realize that coral had so many options for reproduction. Um, yeah. That's incredible. Uh, well, let's then talk about the the system in the back that you are just so proud of. Uh, so walk my walk my listeners through that and and why this is so important. Well, based on everything we just talked about, uh, that's a great segue because this system is the is called the ex situ spawning system, and the goal, well, the purpose of this system is to create seasonal variability, which is what produces. Uh, gonad maturation in corals and gametogenesis basically it what gets it's what encourages them to produce eggs and sperm so the whole idea is that this system has controllers in place um, all of the standard equipment for removing nutrients and for supplementation that i talked about in our big systems but on top of that we have controllers that can replicate um, changing sunrise and sunset so obviously that changes the day length as well, uh, as well as the, the moonrise and moonset, as well as the day of the new moon in that month. So lunar, lunar period, periodicity. And then it also controls the heaters and the chillers so that we can have as fine-tuned control as we want over the temperature to a tenth of, degree, uh, of a degree if we want to. Um, so basically what we do is we tell the controller at the beginning of each month what we want each of those to be, those values, and then it it makes the curve for us throughout the month, uh, which is foolproof. Um, so that's uh, that's that's the idea. It's, it's really awesome. I'm really excited to get corals in there at some point. Um, we're just waiting for the, the go-ahead. Yeah, that is that is such an awesome idea. And then what what will you do with that eventually once you get your coral in there? Like what's the plan? It takes a while. It takes um I think I think that at least at least eight to ten months. Um I think the males actually can be up to only two months to produce the sperm that they need for a spawning event, but uh ideally we subject them to this seasonal variability for a one year. So um it would have been awesome this year to have received what we knew were gravid corals and then we could put them in there and they, I mean, theoretically they wouldn't have skipped a beat and we could have actually collected, uh, gametes. So we collect the sperm and eggs and we can actually control fertilization based on individual genetics that we know and we want to, um, to mix. So that's the idea and that's the goal. And um, it gives us the ability to study different genetics for different purposes. That's really cool. So what is the, what is the plan for this place? What's your, what's your five year, 10 year, you know, what, what, uh, what's the dream for this, this, uh, this uh, I think, I think the, the big answer is just copy and paste this building about five, 10 times. <laughs> nice. Um, and eventually we have, I mean, we have the space here at Moat Aquaculture Park, Moat Aquaculture Research Park. And eventually we want to house corals from all over the world and be doing this this same idea uh, as far as storing them in triplicate, like I said, um, for future restoration and research. But also with these spawning systems, we can take interesting genetics and amplify them and cross them with other interesting genetics for research and restoration purposes. Um, So restoration based on our research. Right. 
led by research. And then if you find that there are certain genetics that, say, are not susceptible to the disease that is ravaging and stuff right now, you can amplify those and release more of those. And, and hopefully that's another way to help like curb the disease that's happening now or any future disease, right? And to help those... Uh, those genetics promote themselves on the reef, right? That's the, is eventually to get these corals back on their feet. Yeah, that's the goal. Wait, coral have feet? You didn't? No, I'm kidding. I know, <laughs> I know I'm kidding. I have to get a couple dumb jokes in every episode or else uh, people don't like it. <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. That's that's really, this, this whole place is so fascinating to me. Um, and how much, so so here we are in this this place that is, you know, trying to save all the coral and uh like does this take a huge staff is there a, a, a dedicated team of 20 people running around in lab coats back there right now or not yet man we uh we will not probably not 20 people but i mean if we get a couple more buildings then yes but right now it's just um it's me and another biologist and we have one intern that's out here m most of the time uh and that's it but we are also probably at about 20% capacity right now. So, um, but we'll be getting more corals as you can imagine very soon. And throughout the next year, we'll probably end up very close to full, nice. uh, which will, we'll probably end up staffing at least another full-time person, if not two, and then a couple of part-time employees yeah. as well. Um, is it, is it hard work? to keep these guys alive? I mean, I know that like if a system malfunctions or something, then y'all have to jump to it. But is the day-to-day -day husbandry of coral particularly challenging? It can be in the sense that we don't always know what these corals are feeling. Um, they don't show pain or stress. They, well, they don't show pain at all because they, they don't feel pain, but uh, they don't show stress in ways that most animal husbandry caretakers would recognize as stress. So it, and these species also are some that, uh, I mean, Caribbean species in general have not been cared for in closed systems, uh, in mass like this ever in history. So, um, there's a lot of communicating amongst all of the, the zoos and aquariums that I mentioned earlier with the, the rescue corals. Uh, we have a call once a week just to talk about husbandry of corals uh, but even the prior knowledge that we have from holding uh, Pacific corals for aquariums doesn't always equate on the same ratio of a one-to-one -one ratio to these Caribbean corals. So it it is difficult just to know how to manage them. And um, we're applying a lot of the same techniques and uh, it's working for the most part. So, uh, but uh, the work as far as being hard, it's not unless... It's not hard unless uh, unless we're really setting up a new a new area or something like that, and then we're designing something like that. But um, it's also just making sure that you know they're healthy for research, right. and that's that's the most difficult part is 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 understanding their health. Makes sense. Um, I have a question. You mentioned eating. You mentioned reproducing. Does coral poop? Yes, and <laughs> it's funny because they have they have this symbiosis with the plant, the okay. algae. So some of that nutrients gets exchanged, and that you know, quote unquote, fertilizes the algae. But um, some of it gets you know released as nutrients into the system. And since we're not a you know an open system, uh, 
that has to be dealt with. We have to pull that out. Yeah. Interesting. All yeah. right. All right. Well, there you go. Coral poop. Who knew? Um, <laughs> do, do, do you want a poop story? Poop story. Oh, I mean, I save those till the end. But, okay. But we will get there. I was just curious if they poop in general. You, you told me you had something. But they produce waste. Much, so. They produce okay. waste. Yeah. So uh, it's a lot less than you might think. It's usually just uneaten food or, you know, something like that. But it, if you're feeding a lot or if they're stressed, they produce a lot of mucus, um, which isn't poop, but... You know, yeah. yeah. So they do. They they have to. They have to excrete what they've digested. Yeah. It's it's fascinating to me how much this is uh, so similar to other animals that I've talked about, while also being so completely different. Completely different. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, so if you've inspired people who are listening and they're like, "Wow, we should really help with coral restoration or whatever," how can people help coral? Just being conscientious of, you know, everything that you do on a, on a daily basis. Um, just understanding that even your your choices that you make if you live in the middle of the country can impact the ocean. Um, ocean chemistry, it's funny because as a coral, you know, someone who cares for corals in a closed system, your job is, is, is kind of water chemistry, just making sure that everything is the way it is. So if we're affecting the ocean's chemistry... Uh, we're affecting the health of the corals. So just making sure that everything you do at home, um, as far as producing waste and, um, you know, obviously the, the, you know, the less you can drive, the better, just small choices in everyday life, um, can make a, make a huge impact. Um, but I think the, the biggest thing is, is just learning about the ocean. I think a lot of people don't take the time to appreciate and learn about the ocean, and that, that can help the entire world, just understanding and talking about the ocean itself and appreciating it. All right. Very cool. Uh, so I have a question. We talked about a lot of the different things pertaining to coral. And I, I mentioned it and we, we, we touched on it a little bit. But coral bleaching is a term that people hear a lot, I think, when you hear about coral. What is it? How does it happen? Is that just what we were talking about with the destruction stuff? Um, or is this something different? A little bit. Bleaching is a stress response. So it's not like, you know, bleaching is, uh, is the problem. It's a response to all of the other problems. Okay. So they turn basically that the algae that we talked about is more or less what gives them the colors that they have. And once that algae decides that the coral itself is too stressed to stay there any longer, they leave. Or if maybe it's too hot, usually is what causes the corals to bleach. So the, the algae symbiont leaves the coral and you're left with a jellyfish that has a white skeleton underneath it. So that's why they look quote unquote bleached is because you're seeing straight through the jelly like animal to its white skeleton. Right, right. So it's just a, it's, that's a response to stress and it can be from, it can be from many stressors, not just temperature, but the temperature is usually the, the one that causes bleaching. All right. Very cool. Uh, and then is there anything else that you wanted to share about coral in general before we get to the poop story? Poop story. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. I could show you. I mean, there's a lot of couple, a couple of things that I want to show you before you leave as far as I can actually control the lights in here. Nice. Corals fluoresce. I don't know if people know that. Nice. Um, you've probably seen videos and stuff of corals being super bright colored and everything. Um, 
but that helps them to manage light stress. So I can show you in the other room uh, how if we change the light specifically to a blue spectrum, which is a, as humans know, if you're getting hit with uh, high energy light, like ultraviolet, then uh, that can cause issues. Right. So corals have a, since they sit in the sun all day, they actually have a built-in mechanism to manage that. Um, it's also on the algae that's in the algae that's within the corals tissues. It, they can manage that stress as well. And basically what happens is they have a protein inside of them that they have multiple different types of proteins and pigments that as these high energy waves hit them, they change shape and reflect a different color. So you get these crazy greens and oranges uh, and reds from these corals that in daylight look just kind of brown. Right, right. If you hit them with really blue light or ultraviolet light, you get some amazing colors. <laughs> nice. So, yeah. Nice. Very cool. Um, and then it's time. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Ron Safari Poop Story. Hit me. So as we're removing this waste, we use something called a protein skimmer. Basically what it does is uh, it just it pushes all of this waste, organic waste, poop <laughs> up into the top of this collection cup on top of the the filter itself so all of these bubbles rise up and then they pop and into this cup and it just looks like bubbles when you're looking in the filter itself but at the top in the collection cup it's this green brown sludge man and uh there are some gnarly smells in zoos and aquariums protein skimmate is amongst the gnarliest <laughs> i had um i had some interns here <laughs> a couple weeks ago and i showed them how to empty the protein skimmers and i don't know i'll show you next they're about three feet tall these are these are pretty big skimmers the ones over in some of the other aquaculture buildings are like 10 feet tall wow. so these aren't super impressive skimmers compared to the fish systems we have much less waste compared to fish but it's still gross so as they were trying to remove the collection cup from the top, the basically the the plunger on the bottom came out and it shot all over one of my intern's shirts. Oh no! And she screamed, and uh, I had to like I wheeled my chair back to look out look out over the into the thing, and she's just got she's got skimmate all over her shirt. <laughs> yep, it was pretty. I felt bad because I've. Felt like I should have shown her a, maybe a better technique, but <laughs> she still messed it up, and it was pretty funny. <laughs> Love so. it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah. All right, y'all. So here's the deal. You may notice you're not hearing transition music right now to the end part of this like usual, and there's a reason for that. As you probably know, I have a Patreon where you can support the podcast financially. And uh, I am so thankful to all of my patrons, especially my Red Panda-level patrons, PJ Bevan and Laura Shank. Um, but really, all of, all of everyone who is a patron, it just it means the world to me. And uh, they really enjoy it, too, from what I can tell. And uh, one of the big perks of being a patron is that you get bonus audio from a lot of the episodes. Well, I'm not going to lie. My bonus audio from Nick was some of my favorite I've ever gotten. And so I wanted to show you all 
the kind of bonus benefit stuff that you can get if you are a patron of the podcast. So today I'm going to put it here for all of you. This is the kind of stuff that you can get week after week if you are a patron of the podcast. So please consider going to patreon.com slash rossafari and becoming a patron. You can sign up for as little as $3 a month and every single patron gets the bonus audio. So without further ado, here is the rest of the interview with Nick. All right. And we are here for the Patreon bonus content. So question for you, and it's probably the goofiest one you have ever been asked um, dealing with coral. But, uh, you know, everybody who listens know I have, my favorite animal is the red panda and I have my big four that I love and all kinds of stuff. Um, do, do you have a favorite type of coral? And like, dear God, I feel dumb asking this and please say no if it's no, but have you ever like bonded with a particular individual coral oh, you're smirking at me but hey these are it's an animal i want to ask a fair question that is a fair question <laughs> um it's funny because you sometimes you do feel like you connect with these rocks right like they're that's what everybody thinks is they're rocks but um you can have like a connection with them it's that I, I mean it's not like a personal thing they don't know who you are right, right but right. um as they're as the person that takes care of them it's um it, it becomes it becomes kind of personal to you so uh i guess my my favorite coral um there's one specific type of coral that's it's just a single polyp it's like a it's a small disc coral and um you can actually put food like on the disc and watch it open up and it literally looks like a jellyfish oh wow um and they're I mean, they come in all different types of colors, and they're they're beautiful. I've actually never had one personally in my own tank, but from uh, where I used to work, this nonprofit, uh, we had one that I would feed every now and then. I actually have a couple time lapse videos of this thing opening up and eating. It was incredible. Nice. What? Uh, what? Like, what's the name? What's the? the it's called a scalemia, um, okay. which is the genus name. Um, people call them scullies, um, and they're so many, I mean, they come in all different types of colors. So, um, but they're, I think they're just called like a disc coral, the common name. <laughs> some of these, it's funny cause some of the common names I don't even know. That, yeah. Um, I yeah. can get that. Yeah. That's yeah. really cool. Um, and so I, I, you know, cor- let, let's, uh, coral nerds, right? <laughs> this is a thing, isn't it? I'm, I'm getting this vibe. Uh, yeah. You've said a couple of times yeah, yeah. little things like, oh yeah, but we call them this or whatever. Yeah. Is this like a, a weird culture where y'all have like a subreddit? Totally. And like, yeah, this is, this is yeah. a thing, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, you can get online and look up, uh, I'm trying to think of some goofy names. <laughs> I mean, there's all kinds of, uh, like I, I can't think of any right now. Um, there's there's purple dragon acros. There's the Garf bonsai acro. I mean, there's I mean they have names for these in the aquarium trade, and I mean it. It's an entire. It's a lot of people like they have fish in their tanks for fun because they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's people that I mean don't have fish in their tanks, oh, wow. and it's okay. just it's just about the coral. So there is an entire like cult out there, if you want to call it that, of of coral nerds <laughs> that's that awesome. just that just love the coral. 
You, you so. did when you said fish in the tank. There was a little derision in your voice. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I heard it. I heard it. It was there. I mean, you know, they're kind of cool, but <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I would be remiss if I didn't immediately tell you how absolutely cool my experience at this Coral Gene Bank was. It was amazing. First of all, like I mentioned, before we did the interview, Nick gave me a tour of the place, and it was cool. It was neat. A lot of little kind of open-top aquariums you could look down in and see different coral doing different coral things, which to the naked eye is basically just sitting there looking like rocks. Still very cool. However, afterwards, we went back into the bank, and Nick got really specific. He had me look at different coral under different lighting and with different um, like shaded glasses, like blue glasses and stuff, so that I could see the fluorescence and see them showing off their different colors. And um, it was explained to me that this isn't bioluminescence. Uh, it's it's not that. It's just that the, um, the plants, the algae inside the coral react differently to different light and different. It, it was, it was fascinating. It was really cool. Um, and I was able to use those glasses to take some pictures of it. So y'all, you are going to want to go to at Ross Safari on Instagram and Facebook, and you are going to want to look specifically for the posts from this day's episode, because whew, there's some weird, cool stuff there. You will really appreciate what you're seeing more after having listened to all the amazing stuff that Nick shared. Anyway, don't forget that you can check out Moat by going to at Moat Marine Lab on Instagram and Facebook or going to moat.org for more information about this amazing organization. And remember, y'all, coral may be an animal, but credits are not. However, credits backwards is Stiderk. The Ross Safari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Ross Safari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Ross Safari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.